This is an ABC podcast. Temperatures are getting warmer and warmer, which means every summer is getting progressively warmer and warmer. So I think in, in the future, we're, we're really going to be on alert every summer for bleaching. Confirmation of another La Nina weather event this year has scientists concerned about coral bleaching along WA's Ningaloo coast. We'll head there soon. And as their member numbers dwindle, the National Servicemen's Association is looking to close its doors by 2026. So who will continue to tell the stories of the Nashos? Who's going to talk about us? Only the families. And if you have an association like that, hey, what happened to everybody happened to Santa? Well, he went over here and he went there. Keep the memory of that person alive. That's the only thing we can do. The only way we can do that is pass our stories on. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide. Marine scientists are worried confirmation of another La Nina weather event this year will lead to more coral bleaching along the northwest coast of WA over summer. While there are some signs of recovery, researchers have confirmed significant bleaching events along the World Heritage-listed Ningaloo Reef, including Turquoise Bay and Coral Bay. Carnarvon reporter Kate Ferguson has the story. I'm at Tandabidi at the Ningaloo Coast World Heritage Area in Western Australia. We're going coral inspecting with research scientists Dr Luke Thomas and Dr James Gilmore. They're from the Australian Institute of Marine Science. And I hear there's a friendly tiger shark called Terry the Tiger. We may get to meet him underwater. Let's see. A local celebrity. Here's Dr Luke Thomas. Yeah, so we were up here... In the middle of the summer, and we observed some bleaching at Bundegi Reef in the Gulf, so on the east side. We've come out uh, on Tantabidi a few times since we've been up here, and it looks great. Water temperatures have cooled, no signs of, of bleaching mortality. Seems to have avoided a lot of this historical bleaching that we've observed unfolding on other reefs. Partly because of the hydrodynamics, it's quite deep offshore, so you get lots of cold ocean- oceanic water flushing in, um, which acts as a sort of a lifeline to these corals. We have tools now where we can swim across the reef, collect a small nubbin from that colony, we can take it back into the lab, we can expose it to heat stress, and so we can, what we call phenotype that coral, score that coral for toughness. And so we're trying to get an understanding of how many of the corals in Tantabidi have those, those tough genes that make them resilient to heat stress. Further south, scientists say coral crops within the famous Turquoise Bay are in recovery mode. The Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions say they've detected between 20 and 30% coral bleaching. Here's Marine Park Coordinator Sally Ann Gudge from the DBCA. There's probably a couple of corals that are probably, um, you know, didn't recover to the full extent, but there's definitely growth there and um, we are seeing some baby corals and recruits so that's a really great sign as well. And it's not the first time for Turquoise Bay. The more recent coral bleaching events were in 2011 and 2013. Here's Dr James Gilmore. So coral bleaching is the process by which uh, under warm water usually, it can be any kind of stress but it's usually warm water, corals uh, expel or spit out the tiny algal cells that live inside their tissue and the algal cells really provide a food source to the corals. The corals can also feed with their polyps on, on, um, in the water column, but really most of their food tends to come from this algae. And it's this amazing symbiosis or this relationship.
relationship. It's not much different to humans and trees, you know, where we get the oxygen from the trees and they provide food and things and vice versa. Uh, so they have this symbiosis, but when it's very hot, that breaks down and essentially the, the algal cells are expelled from the coral. Uh, and if that heat continues, then the corals will likely die. Warm ocean temperatures and light winds created a double impact for WA's coast earlier this year. Along with a marine heat wave, a separate fish kill event took place at Bills Bay in Coral Bay in April, which led to coral bleaching among the shallows. What happened at Bills Bay was quite unlucky, to be honest. So there was a, a, a large spawning event where westerly winds blew all that spawn into the protected bay. When those spawn break down, the bacteria feed on those, on those um, eggs and sperm and larvae, it turns the water anoxic, and so you had this low oxygen event and that ultimately caused coral mortality. It coincided with warmer waters during the summer, but there were largely two separate processes happening. So it was a string of bad luck, really. And with a rare third La Nina in a row confirmed by the Bureau of Meteorology, scientists are concerned they'll see another combination of high temperatures and light winds along the northwest coast this summer. Temperatures are getting warmer and warmer, which means every summer is getting progressively warmer and warmer. So I think in, in the future we're, we're really going to be on alert every summer for bleaching. And my advice is to realise that corals are really fragile, so please don't stand on the coral, don't touch the coral and, and look and enjoy, but don't take. Kate Ferguson with that story from the Ningaloo Reef. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman, in for Sinead Mangan. Let's head south now, where volunteers have converged on a block of Tingle Forest in a national park on WA's south coast over the weekend in a bid to record the plants and animals before it's burnt by the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions. The 400-hectare block is about 20 kilometres northeast of Walpole, near the famous giant Tingle tree and a little way west of the Valley of the Giants. Botanists and insect specialists say the ancient forest is home to species from millions of years ago that will not survive if their habitat is lost. But the department has, has listed the block to be burned in the next few months. Albany reporter Mark Bennett has the story. In one of WA's oldest Tingle Carry forests near Warpole, the clock is ticking and volunteers who've come to document what lives in the forest are worried about how much time they have. Is DPCA intending to burn it in the next six months? Yes, it is on burn plan. 170 volunteers from Perth and around the state, armed with cameras and clipboards, signed up to spend three days taking photographs and specimens to be recorded and shared before the block is set alight. My name's David Edmonds and I'm a volunteer with the Warpole Norlup National Park Association. Why did you choose this particular block? So the Tingle Forest is one of the iconic uh, ecosystems of the Warpole wilderness. The Tingles are found nowhere else in the world and there is, they're a sort of forest that is a remnant from a time when it was wetter um, and the climate was wetter. And as climate has dried, it's retreated and become a, a, just a small area that now where it exists. And one of the reasons we chose this spot is because it's been a long time since most of this tingle has been burnt. The giant trees are home to some tiny survivors, some only recently discovered by WA scientists. 
My name's Mark Harvey and I work at the Western Australian Museum and I'm curator of arachnids and myriapods. The BioBlitz is going to give us a snapshot of what occurs and what we've been able to find here and what occurs in these habitats. We're mostly looking for creepy crawlies like spiders and other arachnids, so that includes ticks and mites, harvestmen, scorpions and things I work on, pseudoscorpions. We're also looking for millipedes and centipedes which we've got expertise in in the museum. This part of Western Australia is very special. Um, it includes lots of different species that are found nowhere else on earth and are only found in these high rainfall forests here on the south coast. They give us actually a really important signal of what habitats used to look like um, 20, 30, 50 million years ago. So some of these species are ancient survivors of old groups that have become extinct elsewhere in Western Australia as the habitats have changed. For volunteer Keith Bradby, it's an important project. For me... We really, really urgently need to understand what we're doing with managing this country and, and particularly with fire. I mean, we're living in a drying climate now. This is an ecosystem that left to itself will adapt. We, we burn it a lot. What sort of damage are we doing and what can we do better? And ceramic artist and local Warpole resident Luda Kuzinski is helping find spiders in the bark of the tingles. You know, if it's going to be burnt in six months, uh, could lose a lot of these. Well, certainly, according to the museum man, Mark, uh, we will lose all the spiders that are here. And that's what I've been looking for. And I've found two spiders today. I don't think it was anything terribly exciting, but I'm very thrilled I found two spiders. Every plant, insect and animal found is recorded. Absolutely. And then uploaded to the iNaturalist website. That's it. Sure. Done. Okay. Also linked to the Atlas of Living Australia and to an international database that can be used by scientists across the world. So we do need to be careful on how these systems are managed and burnt and we need quite a bit of nuance in the burning program to make sure these systems are burnt sympathetically and that they are here for future generations. That's volunteer with the Walpole Nornalup National Park Association, David Edmonds, ending that story from Mark Bennett. And the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions said detailed flora and fauna surveys would be completed before any prescribed burn in the area, including a veteran tingle tree burn assessment. It said fire crews would aim to maintain fire behaviour at low intensity. This is ABC Australia Wide. Between 1951 and 1972, 287,000 young Australian men were recruited for compulsory military training across Navy, Army and Air Force in the National Service Scheme, making them Nashos forevermore. During that period, 212 died in active service in Borneo and Vietnam. In 1987, the National Servicemen's Association was set up to represent Nashos and help them stay connected, and to this day, it's the second largest ex-service organisation in the country. But all of that could come to an end when the National Executive are forced to close their doors in 2026 due to declining numbers. Fraser Coast reporter Lucy Loram spoke with President of the Harvey Bay branch, Brian Barker, about his time as a Nasho. Service number was 1739252. One thing you never forget, your number. My service time, I'd done national service, 1972 to 1973. Rejoined the regular service, 1976 to 1982. Joined the public service, 1982 to 1997. So over 20-something 20, 20 years. How did you get recruited into the National Servicemen of Australia? By law, in those times, we were 19. Those who turned 20 in a specific period 
January to June of that year, they had to register their names if they're going to turn 20 in that time. Out of those um, registrations, mine went in in July, August 71. My name got drawn out in the March draw for 72. So I had to start my service on the 27th of September 1972, the last intake. Where did your years as within the National Service, where did it take you? Well, first off, I went. I lived on Bribey Island at the time, went down to Singleton for my uh, recruit training. I caught the bus, local bus, went all the way down to Central Station, walked with my little suitcase and all my civilian gear down to Merrick Street, all the people, all the Nashos were outside, the long hair, short hair, crew cuts, they had everything, all ragtag people were all there. Nasho, yes, oh my, yeah, yep, right, okay. So we all just stood outside. Well, it would have been about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. I said, come on, you're all piling onto this bus. The army bus pulled up, we all piled onto there. Went out to Brisbane Airport. Flew down to Richmond Air Force Base. This is still in one day. Got out at Richmond down in Newcastle and... Busted all the way down to Singleton. We had um, jackaroos, we had ringers, we had bank tellers, we had um, police officers, we had everything. Myself, I was only a shop assistant. We were looking at people, yeah, what do you do for living? Nothing, I'd just bum around on a surf and all this type of thing. <laughs> everything, you no, know, it's all walks of life. So it was very interesting, I enjoyed it. Two o'clock on the um, afternoon, 27th, and the CO says, you were, mister, you are now a recruit. You are now in the army. I am your mother, I am your father, and I am everything you're going to see. So you were a part of that, you know, special group of, of the last intake, which, of course, we've just seen a, a pretty significant anniversary for that go-by as well. Yeah, that was the 50th anniversary of the last intake. So, as I said, no more since then. You get to be a family because everyone relies on everyone. You know me and you are the same. I'll look after you, you look after me. We're wearing the same green suit. And that was it. Obviously, there's still a really prevalent and, and strong Nasho community and spirit yep. in areas like Harvey Bay, across the state, across the country. But unfortunately, we're seeing branches have to close their doors. So what's yeah. that about, do you think? That's because of age. The oldest at the moment, we've got one here, one of our members, Sis Woodland. He joined, he got the second call up in 1951. You work out his age. He was 18 then. That's it. He's the, our oldest member. Matter of fact, he's one of the oldest ones here. Our oldest supporter we had up till two years ago was 103. She had four sons in the Nashos. Well, we lost her uh, about three or four years ago. But we need the young people to come in, even if it's his supporter, because Mirabara closed two years ago, two and a half years ago. Bundaberg closed in May. Not enough um, members around. They're, uh, they're of that age. As I said, it's one of the histories we're going to lose. It's not just an, an issue we're facing here within the Wide Bay. It's a national decision come 2026. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, well, there's a national executive, and that is Australia-wide. They're the top ones over Australia. They are closing uh, 2026, but he's left them, they have left it to the states to close when they want. Now, I spoke to our state president. He said Western Australia has 18 members. South Australia's got 34 members. Tasmania, I think, got, I think he said 12. There's more than that, but this is, the, as I said, the organisation is losing the people. Here, Queensland, we're the strongest one out. You eventually lose all your tales, stories, histories, names. And ageing is unfortunately inevitable, but is there any other way that you guys can be supported? More supporters. They come in, well, they can barbecues, picnics and all this type of thing. Remember George, remember what he used to do. Remember, keep your memory alive. But who's, who's going to talk about us? 
only the families. And if you have an association like that, hey, what happened to everybody happened to Santa? Oh, well, he went over here and he went there. Keep the memory of that person alive. That's the only thing we can do. The only way we can do that is pass our stories on. There's one saying we as a Nasho say, you can never be an ex-Nasho. You can always be ex-Army, you can always be ex-Navy, you can always be ex-Air Force. You went in, you got out. You got into Nashos because you didn't want to, but you'll never get out of it. Nashos, National Servicemen, we did our duty. We had no choice. That's the president of the Harvey Bay Nashos, Brian Barker, speaking to Lucy Loram. And a spokesperson for the Minister for Veterans Affairs, Matt Keogh, says the decisions relating to ongoing administration are a matter for the association and that veterans and families are eligible for counselling from Open Arms via the government website or on 1800 011046. Dolbadilla was a booming railway camp nestled in western Queensland but since its heyday in the late 1800s, it's been buried beneath, underneath, cactus and cattle farming until now. Hobby historians have uncovered the town cemetery, with its stories being brought back to life from the grave. Kemi Maguire has this story. Toowoomba local Jane Wilson is a historian in her free time. But away from family trees or war stories, Jane has dug up, quite literally, an entire 19th century town in western Queensland. Dolby Dillo, originally it started out, it was called Black's Waterhole because of the colour of the water from the native tree, the leaves falling into it. It received the name of Dolby Dillo when uh, the railway was being built through. It lasted for a period of about three years. It had eight to ten pubs at, at any one time. They were always going bust and moving and, and doing whatever. There was over 500 people. I, I've always liked to call it a boom and bust town. What did it look like when you first arrived at Dolby Dilla? Typical Western Queensland country. It has got nothing outstanding anywhere. <laughs> nothing struck me about Dolby Dilla. It, it was actually, I was fortunate to go and meet a fellow and his name was Billy Hughes. And he had been chasing bury, graves in the district for quite a number of years. And I came across a photo and it was of a man sort of nose diving into cactus bushes and with the word Dolby Diller underneath it. And I thought, oh, this looks interesting. And then I got a little bit obsessed about it. For the next three years, Jane Wilson delved into every Queensland archive, museum document, a word-of-mouth story about the people buried in Dolby Dilla. And its stories came through from beyond the grave. There's quite a number of young children. A young fellow that died of consumption, he was 20, and his parents were buried in Roma about 18 months later, both of them within about a month of each other. We've got a chemist that moved there, and he died within a week of moving there. John McKenzie. John McKenzie was the publican at Dolby Dilla. He was there for a lot of his life. He stayed there after Dolby Dilla had moved on and the family had built him a little cottage in one of the nearby towns and the story goes that they went out to pick him up to take him to his new little home and they found him dead so he never left Dolby Dilla and he's buried beside his wife. 
This isn't the first historical discovery for the region. Maranoa's mayor, Tyson Golder, says much of the region's stories relies on its locals. We have them in our communities and they take an interest and thank goodness they do because in the region they've uncovered cemeteries, a lot of soldiers. They even found gone back to the Boer War like um, soldiers that were returned not even from this area and they were passed away here so there's a lot of wonderful benefit I I call them the outback angels in a way because they just really will keep our history for the future generations and a lot of uh, families now go looking for their relatives and it's wonderful if there's somewhere that they can make a connection. The cemetery has since been cordoned off, cleared and is now looking to have a storyboard placed outside for future generations. Dolby Dilla now is just open country. It's got a little tin Dolby Dilla railway siding. Um, April this year we had a commemorative service and about 100 people turned up. Probably 30 to 40% of those were related to someone that's buried in the cemetery. You know, if every community was doing that, then we won't be losing as much of our history. And that's the one thing that I don't want to do. I don't want to lose these stories. Some of them are just awesome. That's Toowoomba local and hobby historian Jane Wilson ending that report by Kemi Maguire. And finally on Australia-wide, after a COVID-induced two-year hiatus, thousands of utes roared their engines into the Denny Ute muster in southern New South Wales at the weekend. What first started in the late 90s to attract visitors to the town during a crippling drought has now turned into a bucket list event, attracting people to Daniloquin from all over Australia. Riverina reporter Olivia Calver has more. This is a time one, folks. Organisers of this year's Denny Ute Muster say more than 18,000 people attended the celebration of all things country. There were show and shines with Ute owners putting their pride and joys on display, along with Ute Circle Work races celebrating the best burnouts. Big country music stars drawing the crowds and volunteers cooking up a storm of snags on the barbecues to feed a hungry horde. Fifteen years ago, Ute fanatic Dave Pearce sold one of his bull bars to help pay for his first trip to the Denny Ute muster. Yep, sold my bull bar to a fella from Wagga and yeah, that paid for fuel and entry and stuff like that. Must have been um, pretty worth it because you've kept on coming back. Why do you keep returning year after year? It's everything, everything about Denny. It's the atmosphere, the Utes, like mates, friendships, friendships that have become like family. Well, you've met some pretty important people here, though, haven't you, over the years? Yes, I have, actually, yeah. Um, and I, in 2019, I actually met my current partner here. Almost 8,000 Utes made it to the Ute Muster this year, falling short of the festival's world record of almost 10,000 in one place at the same time. But the event did break its own world record for the Blue Singlet count, with more than 4,100 people rocking the Aussie Classic. Edward River Council Mayor Peter Betts says she expects millions of dollars to be injected into the local economy. Well, it brings in a, around $16 million, 
you've got over a thousand volunteers, community sporting groups that benefit from all that, and then the outside communities that benefit as well. So, you know, Canago Pub's back open, Geraldry, Mathaura, Finley, everywhere the, the smaller towns that the people come through to get here all benefit um, as part of the economy that everyone spends a little bit on the way. Peter, how good is it to see Denny back on? Isn't it fantastic? Look at all these people. It's happening, it's buzzing, there's people everywhere. I'm excited. I'm like the mum. You know, the pr- having the proud mum moment, like, you know, when you take your kids to the concert, have a look at all these people here. Proud mum moment, proud mare moment. For those just out of town, it's an opportunity to make a big buck. The nearby 169-year-old Canago pub reopened its doors for the first time since it was burnt down in 2014. The beloved watering hole has been restored by a partnership, including Michael Lodge and his brother Paul. Michael says their dad Neville ran the hotel for close to 30 years and they will continue on in his memory. Why did you want to, I guess, combine the opening with the Ute Muster? Well, obviously for some income. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's been quite expensive undertakings. We needed to get some income in and we thought, what better time than when it's flat out busy. And a lot of people kept calling in and saying, when are you open, when are you open? So I sort of said, well, we'll try and open the Ute Muster. What does the Denny Ute Muster weekend mean to a town like Canago? Well, it keeps the town alive. It's certainly a lot of hype of activity. There's thousands of vehicles passed through here. Now that the engines have finally died down, organisers say about $100,000 will be donated to local community groups. Olivia Calver there at the Denny Ute Muster. And that is Australia-wide for this Monday evening. Evening, I'm Alex Simon. I'll get the frog out of my throat. Have a great evening. Cheerio. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.